This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Sally McManus is ACTU secretary and the first woman to hold that important position within the union movement. She blasted onto the scene and our TV screens a couple of years ago in a memorable encounter with the ABC's Lee Sales and has quickly become a household name. She's also the author of a new essay out through Melbourne University Publishing. It's called On Fairness and she stopped by and had a chat with us um, before we kicked off the show this morning and here's how it went. So, Sally, it's a really interesting time, I think, to be talking about fairness. We've just had the Banking Royal Commission. We've got another Royal Commission into Aged Care kicking off today. And I was thinking about the idea of the fair go, and it seems to me that it means many things depending on who's saying it. And I wonder what you think about the Australian community's attitude towards fairness. Do you think our understanding of it is diminishing or is it still really held strong? Um I think that it is diminishing. I think that is true to say. And it's been because really of neoliberalism and a concerted um, attack really on the basic ideas of fairness or really the 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 value of holding on to an idea such as the fair go. So I think for people who have lived in Australia for longer than 30 or 40 years, it's very much um, still a, a cultural um, part of, of identity, of Australian identity. But I do think it's been eroded over that exact, exact, exact same time for the reasons I talked about. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, one of our Prime Ministers uh, has said fair shake of the sauce bottle and I don't know if that's when it started or (laughs) when do you think, do you think it's been a gradual? Oh, definitely before then. Um, So, of course, neoliberalism is about promoting the idea as well about the individual and the free market and and all of these ideas that, you know, somehow um, if you you, uh, struggle individually and you work really hard, well, then that's the way you're going to get ahead. Whereas a fair go is something fundamentally different. It's that... um, um, uh, implicit in it is that uh, there's, the government has a role in making sure that people get a fair go or we also have a role ourselves in making sure people have a fair go. So there's there's an agency in that, whereas um, with neoliberalism there's the idea of like the secret hand of capitalism or like Josh Frydenberg said a few weeks ago and uh, repeated by Scott Morrison, you know, the, the, the silent hand of the market. And when you've got this idea that, it, well, it's all just natural that um, you know, things are a bit unequal or natural that some people at the top have much more money than they used to and it's a bit like the sun coming up every day. It's very disempowering because the really you don't, as an individual or a group of people, there's nothing you can do about it if it's just a natural thing. And so the fair goes um, something different. It's something to say that uh, we ourselves can change things. And so um, that's why, obviously, it was uh, it started as a, as a union um, as a union uh, slogan, and there's a really interesting history about that, maybe we can talk about, but um, it has been, we've basically sort of continued on, the trade union movement has, like, believing in the fair go, and you notice Scott Morrison doesn't say the final important words in the slogan, a fair go for all, not, you know, just a fair go for people who have a go, whatever that means. And you mentioned the word disempowering there, which I think is an interesting one. And I guess reflecting on the past decades where union membership has been on the decline and over that time with the rise of neoliberalism, we've also seen wage growth stagnate in Australia while the uh, salaries of CEOs have continued to balloon. Uh, And I guess in the wake of the uh, Banking Royal Commission this week as well, where we've seen, um, which might not have surprised people, the very unscrupulous activities of, of banks and those in the financial sector. Do you think people do find it hard to see a way forward and and to see how we can come together to achieve greater fairness across the Australian society? Yeah, so the whole point of neoliberalism is to get rid of all of the rules that get in the way of really the people at the top end um, making all the decisions. And so they'll say, look, we need to get rid of unions, we need to get rid of all of um, laws, they'll call them regulations or red tape, but really they're actually our rights um, in order to allow the free market to operate. Well, first of all, that's not even really true. Um, they also ask for like governments to intervene on behalf of big corporations to put in laws to support them. Um, but that is why they've gone about dis- 
you know, dismantling our rights over a period of time, privatising things and also uh, trying to crush unions. And there's been a concerted uh, attempt in our country since John Howard got elected to do exactly that. And first of all, what they did is they removed all of the protections and the supports for, for unions when he got elected and we started to see the decline then. If you ask people um, of an older generation, why did they, were, were they a member of the union? And, and half of them will put up their hands and you'll say, well, how did you join up? And most of them will say, oh, everyone was in the union and the employer, like, gave you a membership form. So it's not like there was this, you know, golden generation beforehand that was just much more conscious, much more woke than everyone else or pro-union. It was because there were all those supports. So John Howard went about, like, removing all of those deliberately. The other thing he did was, uh, in order to try and crush unions, was uh, the maritime dispute, which we had the anniversary of, um, 20-year anniversary last year year so that was he tried to do the same thing as his mate uh, Margaret Thatcher did in the US and that's take on the strongest union she took on the miners union idea is is if you can crush them it'll demoralize everyone else and so he lost that one the next thing he did is he he brought in work choices which was just another way of trying to go about the same thing and um, obviously you know we got rid of him and we got rid of work choices but um, these were all the same projects over this period of time and so really for us it's about saying well if you want a more equal world and you want a fairer world you have to have a strong union movement because that's a um, counterbalance to to the power of big business and as business has got more powerful because wealth inequality has got much more extreme you need to be doing governments need to be doing more to support working people not less and there was a point um, in your essay when I started to worry a bit about the union movement and, you know, talking about the drop-in membership down to 15%, but then you describe a new generation of union leaders coming through now. What will you do differently? Well, I think we... The good thing about the union movement is is that, um, that, that there's a sort of a conscious going about passing on history and so um, older union leaders will, um, with younger people coming through, pass on like the lessons from the big fights that they've had and so we're sort of privileged in, in that we've had that and we've had that from a generation who achieved really big things like, you know, there was a national strike in our country in 1976 to defend Medicare. Um, there were big fights to win things like workers' compensation, equal pay, all of that. So um, those people who are involved in in those fights have have been talking to my generation of, of unionists about what that took. But at the same time, you know, you can't be all about what happened in the past, although you'd be a fool not to um, take those lessons. For us, I think... Uh, we recognise that we're in a different time and we're in a time where, you know, we've got global capitalism, it's a global um, fight against inequality and that um, uh, we really are about um, wanting to inspire young people and the next generation that there's something that can be done about the type of world we're ending up in because it's been a deliberate strategy on the other side to say, look, there's nothing you can do about it and we're sending the opposite message. We're speaking with Sally McManus, the Secretary of the Australian Council of trade unions all about her brand new book or essay I guess it is on fairness out through MUP and you kind of frame this essay around your experience when you'd just taken on the the role your role as secretary of the ACU you were thrust into an interview with the ABC's uh 730 with Lee Sales and I re-watched that interview over the weekend and the kind of take-home message and all the headlines in the wake of that were that you were condoning illegal activities that were taken on behalf of on the part of the CFMEU but in that interview you talk a whole lot about the rise of insecure work the reduction in the power of workers in certain industries as well as penalty rates and that sort of thing yet the take-home message in much of the mainstream media was that you were condoning illegal activity. Do you get frustrated at all about the way in which we have this national conversation about workers' rights and, and equality? Oh, totally I do. Absolutely I do. And I was just smiling while you were asking me that question because it's very rare that I that, that someone uh, picks up on all the rest of it because the real things affecting working people are the fact their wages aren't going up and the fact that, that most people, 40% of workers, are in insecure work, not... Um, whether or not a group group of building workers went on strike for an hour last week because they thought that their workplace was unsafe. Um, And I think that there's a disconnect sometimes between parts of the commentariat, but certainly amongst, and a deliberate thing, I guess, by um, conservative and right-wing politicians, just to want to talk about 
um, what they perceive to be the bad things. In particular, you know, the, the boogeyman, like if they can paint like a picture of like a really scary sort of trade union movement, that's the, 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 that'll fulfil the project they're trying to, to, f- to finish, the one that John Howard started, and that's to keep union membership down. So I, I absolutely I find it frustrating. There's so many interviews I do and where that's, you know, the question you've got to deal with. And also just, you know, a lot of Australians not realising that how just out how ridiculous our strike laws are and all of these so-called, um, you know, illegal things that, you know, the CFMEU or other unions have been involved in aren't illegal in other countries. They're just normal. You know, in most other countries, you're driving down the street and you see, oh, OK, a group of building workers have stopped work. Well, that would just be normal. Like, OK, they're having a, a disagreement with their boss and that, you know, they're, they're, they're using what little power they've got to to um, try and fix whatever the problem is. In our country, what happens is, you know, there's a full-time police force just on that group of workers that will be down there, that will individually find them, that will then drag them through the courts, and then it'll be on the front page of the paper, and then the head of the trade union movement's got to answer questions about it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and what um, we didn't know until you wrote this essay was what happened when you went to your first meeting with members of, I think it was the Teachers' yeah. Union, and they gave you a, a, a stand-up round of applause for what you'd said um, with that interview with, with Lee Sales because to them, as to you, it was unremarkable what you'd said. And I think, I mean, have we, have we is the gulf that large now between the way that sort of working people and members of unions are seeing the world and seeing the situation and where business is, is sitting or is there some common ground there? I think that that's in a way an extreme example because we're talking about um, strike action and I think there's a whole lot of people in the middle who just don't even know what it is and they wouldn't because days lost to industrial disputes are at record lows so people wouldn't know anything and what they do know it's sort of you know scary and, and inconvenient to them and so it's very easy to use that part of you know the overall story about um, working people and their unions um, to, to separate and I think that it was very much a deliberate strategy by the right wing in our country to uh, try and um, get me to renounce, um, you know, that, that those achievements and those activities that people took and to put me back in my box, which wasn't going to happen. But on the broader point of a disconnect, I look, since I've been in this job, I've really found it to be true because on one hand, I'm mixing all the time with working people, you know, in every job from, you know, community workers to road workers and spending a lot of time doing that. And all of a sudden I'm in these other circles I've never been in before with people that you know earn a lot of money and are sort of the you know absolute one percent in our country and they're um I don't think they even see us I don't even think they see working people I don't think they like the discussions you try and have with them about insecure work are are frustrating and you just realize you're talking to someone it's like you're trying to describe what's happening on Mars sometimes to them and this is a consequence of inequality like when you get a class of people that now like live totally different lives in different communities and that don't mix with normal people let alone anyone on the minimum wage other than their cleaners who they probably don't even see anyway you know this is this is what happens and you can see this happening in other countries you can see this happening with the yellow vest movement in 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 France those people people felt as though they were unseen that's why they're wearing the yellow vest that's why a lot of people voted for Trump because they felt as though no one cared about um, what was happening to them unfortunately you see it in the rise of the extreme right around the world as as well it's this sense that well we're left out and no one cares about us and I think that that's starting to happen in Australia yeah and I wonder if we look globally just for a moment I mean we've seen over in the US that the new uh, congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has called for a 70 percent marginal tax rate on the super rich we've also seen the rise of such people as jeremy corbyn in the uk and of course the the massive support for bernie sanders at the um, previous presidential election do you feel like the world is waking up to this kind of inequality and and coming up with some ideas for how we can address it i guess looking back over the last few years with the gfc and the like i feel like that um the tide's been going one way for 40 years and the People uh, like me and lots of people like me have been swimming against that tide and now the tide's changed and we're no longer swimming against it. It's not as if it's moving really quickly, but it's definitely moving the other way now. And that um, the reason why is because the economic reality um, 
is is there like people's real experience of inequality is now hard to ignore it's a bit like climate change you know when there's all these fish kills and 40 to 40 over 40 degree heat every single day and melting polar ice caps you can't like you can't keep telling people that it's not real because you know <laughs> your lived experience is totally different so i do believe that um that tide has turned and i don't think it's stoppable because of um you can't keep lying to people and saying that uh, everything's fine we don't have a problem with inequality you've never had it better yours is the first uh, essay sally i've read um where you know you actually talk about you know talk talking to a lot of people and in the list of people that you, you speak to is musicians mm. and i yeah. that sort of stuck out because a lot of um our listeners here we speak to a lot of musicians a lot of musicians work in hospitality as well and I don't know if we need a musician hospitality union I'm not sure that comes together but but what are the the kinds of things that that musicians are, are saying to you and and you know, does the ACTU or does a union have an answer for some of the difficulties that uh, people in the creative arts are facing well first of all I'd really like to tell the story of the group of musicians I met it was actually the symphony orchestras okay and they're all union members and they're really hardcore and so I went to meet them at their sort of annual conference down at the um, symphony centre here in Melbourne and um, <laughs> i given like I gave this speech about inequality and about, you know, the 1% having more than the 70%. Anyway, I'm sitting around and I, I was surprised, first of all, and it was just me not knowing much about, about professional musicians, how young they were. And I thought, well, yeah, like, if you're playing like a cello, like, you're not going to last for, like, until you're in your 60s, are you? It's a really hard job. Anyway, so... I got up and I gave my normal speech, same speech I would give to a group of electricians or building workers or anyone else. And at the end of it, they gave the most like this, this clap that was like, <laughs> like musical. And then it's, I looked at them and all their faces were smiling and glowing. And I thought, oh, what is going on here? Then I realised, of course, they're performers, like they're, they're, I've given a performance in a way in which they're now sort of clapping in the way that they did and it went on and on. I went, oh, my God, now I've got to do the encore. So it's like that different cultures of the different groups that you'd meet, like that wouldn't happen if you were talking to a group of sparkies. So that was, that was, that was good. And they've had like industrial action that they've had to take over periods of time and they tell all those stories. So those young um, uh, professional musicians to pass those on. But, of course, they're not the bulk of musicians. The bulk, um, of course, are working, as you say, in... Um, other industries because they're um, you know absolute insecure work gig jobs like the definition of a gig job really isn't it so um, there's the, there's a whole issues that are happening in those industries and by that hospitality which is such an example of um, how broken our workplace laws are and that's wage theft like the fact that um, it's so open now in terms of just not paying people what they're legally entitled to, which is the irony about um, the bosses and, you know, the, the, the Prime Minister, like, calling me to resign for saying it's sometimes it's OK to break unjust laws where every single day there's all of these hospitality bosses that are breaking laws, our minimum wages, like, every single day and actually costing people money. So... That's all happened because our um, rights have been weakened over a period of time and it's so hard for workers to be able to get that money back that they're owed. The consequences for the, for the employers is so low. The chances of getting caught are so low. Um, and so, like, those are really good examples of things that need to be done. The other thing is, is that a lot of musicians um, may actually be individual contractors. Our laws actually um, prevent them from uh, bargaining collectively, like, that it prevents them from doing that. And that's one of the things we want to change in our campaign. So musicians, freelance um, uh, 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 writers, all of those people in the entertainment industry would have, like, that basic right to collectively bargain that every worker should have. And I want to talk a little bit about your Change the Rules campaign because you've outlined a range of ways in which, in particular, the coalition government has uh, attacked unions and sought to diminish their influence. But it's worth reminding listeners, of course, that the Fair Work Act was brought in by previous Labor government back in 2009. Were circumstances kind of different then that justified the changes that were brought in then or did we get it wrong? What's your view on that and what needs to change if and when we have a new government in Australia? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few elements of that. The first of all is you've got to remember we had work 
work choices and some of some people won't know what that was but basically <laughs> all of our rights were going to be reduced to five minimum conditions like the minimum wage holidays um, paternity leave and a few others that was it there was going to be mainly individual contracts and strict um, um, restrictions on bargaining collectively so it was like John Howard's wet dream absolutely it was you know Thatcher on steroids if he had have you know kept that in there it would have been certainly his greatest achievement even though he still says it's his greatest achievement so the wreckage that we as a movement had to deal with was huge and um, the other thing that happened uh, is is it created a national system for the first time um, before you know there um, there was a whole lot of state rights that people had it abolished all of that so we knew we couldn't go back to all of those state rights we couldn't for a whole lot of boring legal reasons and so there was an attempt to rebuild a system but not necessarily go back to the old system and in that some of those mistakes were made because there were some things in the old system that we uh, that needed to be kept that we that, that that were at that time jettisoned the other thing that happened was a global economic crisis global economic crisis pretty much happened the same time as the fair work act came in and since that time there's been a massive transfer of wealth um, to to the already wealthy um, and that's created this bigger power and imbalance of the type of inequality we see now. So the whole point of laws, of laws for workers, is to recognise there's a power imbalance between the employer and the employees, and it's the job of governments to bring in laws to, to offset that. Now, that power imbalance isn't going to be the same all the time, and it increased when we had the GFC, so uh, there was that um, error as well. I think, um, finally, as a trade union movement, we also reflect and think, well, we should have done a bit more in terms of um, keeping the pressure on after the election. Um, I think a lot of us were pretty exhausted after the election and thought, okay, job done, but the job wasn't done. And, of course, what happened is business fought back and every single day after that election they kept fighting back and fighting back. So um, taking into account all of those things, that's what we're um, thinking about in the future to try and not um, make those same mistakes. <clears throat> so I've got, we're being warned at the moment that electing Bill Shorten and if there's changes to laws in this area, we're going to see widespread industrial action soon is that likely do you think Sally or, or, or what you know it's like um it's sort of like what you're seeing with uh we've seen in the past about you know we're going to be flooded with refugees it was never true but it's just a scare campaign or at the moment there's this thing about the um imputations tax not that anyone understands it but because people don't understand it you know the the coalition's saying oh if labor if, if you elect labor they're going to tax you more so it's not true but it doesn't matter and this is the same with this one um you know, workers, like maybe all of a sudden um, workers in a whole lot of industries will um, rush and join their union and then get organised and then work out um, what they want across industries and then get to a position where they're going to take industrial action. But all of those things I just talked about uh, take time and uh, don't happen overnight. And for the, for the coalition to say it's going to be the same as the 1970s is just an outright lie. And it's an outright lie because the Outside circumstances are totally different. We've got an open economy to the rest of the world. We've got a service sector-based economy now as well. And unfortunately, union membership's at 15%. Back in the 70s, it was at 60%. So um, just an objective look at that without, you know, listening to what I say just says that it's, you know, ridiculous. We've kept you a long time, but um, I think it's going to be an interesting week. I, uh, you mentioned in your um, your essay on fairness that um, there's been some, you know, the raids that took place, uh, was it year before last, the yeah. AWU offices around Get Up, and uh, there's, I think, Michaelia Cash is going to be before a hearing this week, so it's going to be... Is, yeah. Yeah, so um, what do you think will come of that? Well, she's pretty much Michaelia Cash after that um, raid, and I think for her, she was getting just so cavalier and I remember that time you know being the leader um, being the secretary of the ACTU and it was like every day you know there'd be out you know some way of trying to bash unions and it was like every week she had something lined up 
And what quite often things would happen um, where she'd tip off the media and I'd be doing an interview like this and the person doing the interview would say, well, Sally McManus, what about the rivers of gold that are... Hang on, I bet flowing, right now. <laughs> ..flowing into unions? And I had no idea what they were talking about and it was done deliberately, like this whole sort of tipping off of the media beforehand to get you on the back foot and then just to smear you. And so, in a way, when we had the raids on the AWU, it was extreme, but she'd already got used to that behaviour. She was already already busy like behaving in an unethical way in my view um, before everyone saw what happened with those raids and really we shouldn't minimize them because to raid a union office is an absolute disgrace dictatorships do things like that raid these are independent organizations of unions workers organizations you want to have a good reason to be raiding um, their offices and look you know, you talk about raiding people's offices. Look at what happened in the Bank Royal Commission. Look at, you know, there, there was, um, it, it was revealed that uh, there was money laundering to terrorists. There was obviously the stealing of money from a whole lot of people. Did you see, like, any raids on any headquarters of any one of the big four banks? No way. And quite alone. the contrary, your FOI request has, has shown there was a lot of communication between Ken Henry and, and our Prime Minister. Yeah. Can you imagine um, Tony Abbott writing to the head of the ACTU saying, oh, we're going to have a Royal Commission to unions you know um, and and you know the head of the ACTU writing him going oh this is who the type of person you should appoint this is how long it should be and this is like the terms of reference you should think about no way that wouldn't happen and so it's just like more evidence like for me I don't need the evidence but uh, of just how ideologically driven um, that side of politics is as they have been for quite a long time now. So we've got a couple of elections this year and uh, you start right at the beginning of your essay uh, talking about um, you know you didn't have a plan when you went in and spoke to Lee Sales that first media interview you did which was you know beamed you into our our lounge rooms and um, put you on the front pages Uh, but you did say that you wanted to be on the front foot Uh, I figure I know the answer to this but are you going to stay on the front foot you think I don't know any other way Um, if you're talking about the elections, so it's unusual for us, or for me anyway, not to be very well planned. And uh, it's just the interview wasn't something I really knew how to plan for. But in terms of the elections and in terms of the fight that we're going to continue to have about the bigger issue about unfairness, inequality, neoliberalism, you know, it, we've uh, worked out very carefully about what we're going to do and what we're going to execute and really looking forward to the next 16 weeks. Well, thanks for coming into Triple R. We've kept you for ages. It's been um, really good to talk to you and uh, and we commend uh, Sally McManus's essay. It's called On Fairness. It's out through Melbourne University Press and uh, Sally, of course, is the ACTU Secretary. Thanks for coming in. No worries. Thanks, guys. And David Mann from Refugee Legal has been coming on to Triple R for almost two decades now to speak about the highs and lows of Australia's refugee and asylum seeker policies. And David, you're here again because there's always a lot going on. And I thought maybe we could start by talking about uh, why is it we're being warned again about an influx of refugees and asylum seekers from Nauru and Manus and the return of people smuggler boats. Uh, well, I think, you know, we're time and time again in the last two decades, actually, we've heard um, this kind of narrative where, which really is um, uh, based on, you know, successive governments, um, you know, focusing fundamentally on, you know, detention and deterrence as an approach toward, um, you know, vulnerable people who are seeking our, our help, people, you know, who are, have fled from atrocities in places like Afghanistan, in Iraq, in you know, Myanmar. And, um, you know, time and time again, we've heard that narrative and um, it's based on sort of fear it's pr- to provoke fear it's almost to, to try and get into our minds that people with problems um, pose a problem um, you know that people who are threatened will threaten us when there's no evidence whatsoever of that um, and I guess what's also underpinning this at the moment is the fact that the tide is turning um, and uh, so we've seen um, you know, finally um, the last remaining children, the last four children and their families are being evacuated from Nauru after this abhorrent you know, barbaric episode in our nation's history. I mean, and um, we're seeing um, you know, increasingly public disquiet um, about the damage done. There's been a, a piercing um, spotlight um, shone on the, 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 the terrible, terrible mistreatment um, and inhumanity wrought, uh, not only against children, but, but you know, men and women with heartbeats um, held on Nauru and on Manus Island. And I think that, um, once again, um, 
it seems that the only answer, and it's not a true answer, but the only answer that is thrown up um, amongst this sort of terrible, interminable political jousting about who can be tougher is somehow that we should be fearful of actually finally um, you know, starting to move to evacuate people um, who are desperately, desperately ill and, um, and, and you know, uh, where lives are at stake. And, and so how significant, I mean, it, obviously it's a good news story that children have or, or will very soon be moved off Nauru. There won't be any children in our offshore detention camps. But what does this mean for the broader policy settings and the way this issue is being handled by the government and potentially a, a Labor government after the election this year? Because my understanding is if asylum seeker boats arrive tomorrow, there still would be children in detention. Well, we don't know. Actually, it's a very interesting point. It's one of the one of the questions that um, needs to be um, confronted and answered um, because um, it seems. So, the first point is, as you say, is that now the final children uh, are being taken off Nauru, um, and um, and really, I just want to say one one critical thing on this is that you know um, it quite quite extraordinary, breathtakingly, the government is claiming credit for this as if somehow its policies have been successful after. And let's just we need to absolutely be clear about this after. It is um, the government that forced these children and their families and unaccompanied children to Nauru um, uh, over five years ago and left them in cruel limbo, which crushed them, right? And we expend, have expended billions of dollars to rapidly destroy the lives, their lives and the lives of their you know, other men and women. Um, so um, how, how this happened... Uh, was really through the collective, the, the uh, unceasing collective efforts um, of, you know, human rights ad- advocates, of, you know, uh, medical professionals, um, of lawyers, of you know, teachers, of parliamentarians, uh, the UN Refugee Agency, other... But really, this... And, you know, what they did you know, is raise their voices unceasingly. They documented and, and, and disclosed the abuse... Uh, constantly, um, and um, as as well, um, legal action was taken. And let's remember this: that um, you know, and we've been involved in this very much. That you know, that it, it you know, legal action was necessary. Resort to legal action in Australian courts was necessary to force the government, fighting tooth and nail, uh, to resist children being brought off who were desperately unwell on the basis of medical evidence. Tooth and nail, um, there were fights time and time again over these matters in the Australian courts. And that's what, you know, ultimately it's that collective effort. And I also think a shift in public sentiment, um, you know, this disquiet about the damage done that has changed. Why is that so important? Well, the tide is turning. I think it is evidence of the tide turning um, and, a, and, a, and a, you know, an acknowledgement, a realisation this cannot go on in the way it is and that the policy has failed. The human and financial cost is incalculable. So the medical evacuation bills that we're hearing about, um, can you sort of give us a little bit of background on those because I'm not sure if everyone's been keeping up with them and I suppose we haven't had Parliament sit for a while. They're sitting again this week. Uh, On one hand, you're hearing a lot that if these bills uh, get up, uh, the the government's weak because they've lost a vote on Parliament or whatever, but if they get up, what actually is the substance of these bills? Yeah. So, look, the, the, the key bill um, was actually sponsored by, um, by Karen Phelps as a new Member of Parliament, and um, it was really one of her first acts, um, having, um, having won, won the seat of, of Wentworth. And um, it's, it's widely called the Medical Evacuation Bill. It's, a bit, it's got one of those really tedious sort of, you know, sort of long-winded titles that no-one can remember, but let's call it the Medical Evacuation Bill. And the whole idea of it is this... It, it seeks to, I think the starting point is it seeks to respond or address a really serious problem um, which has resulted in um, men, women and children desperately unwell who cannot be receive adequate care on Madison Nauru. It, it, it seeks to address the problem where they have, the, you know, they have not been brought to Australia um, or not been brought quickly enough, right? And what it does there, it, what, what it's trying to do is compel the government... To, um, to effectively act on expert medical assessments um, and, and to effectively act on them so that if, if a panel of medical experts um, reports that, um, let's say, a, a man on Manus uh, 
cannot be properly cared for there and needs to be evacuated for, for proper care and treatment in Australia, that the government receives that report and acts on it to do so, an independent report. Because one of the things, and we, I can tell you this right now, and we're, we're still working away um, on it, quite a number of cases of men, for example, on Manus, um, who are desperately unwell, um, desperately unwell. And one of the big issues is that there are there have been a range of strategies employed in PNG, uh, which have um, you know sought to circumvent or thwart you know proper assessment, proper medical assessment. In our view, this bill um, you know seeks to, to basically um, you know, cut through that and, and basically say to the government you have to you have to follow if an expert if an expert medical opinion says that this person needs to be brought off, you need to follow. And it. so potentially it's true then that what, what Christopher Pine's been quoted as saying is that basically means everybody's going to come off. Well, we well you see is that this, potential because everybody's well it is it's well it's struggling. Well, what, what I can say is that, you know that we don't know because because actually the whole point of the bill is that there be proper medical assessments. Um, and that's not uh, happening now. Not enough. No, there is no. No, it's not. It's not. It not that process is simply not happening. And I can tell you right now, we're assisting some men on men on Manus Island, who. Um, I mean, no one should be there. Every one of the more than 1,000 people left, men and, and women, uh, on Manus and Nauru should be evacuated immediately. We know that, right? And there should be an end to offshore processing. But right now, um, I can tell you from some of those people we're acting for um, that they are so unwell that they urgently need to be evacuated. And yet, um, there is not proper, there is simply not proper regard had to their situation. And we've seen federal court orders imposed to facilitate the relocation of people who are seriously ill on, on Manus and Nauru. What does that look like in the courts? I mean, is there a significant delay involved when these federal court orders are imposed or when you have to wait for them to be heard? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, so the way these cases have arisen is that um, we're, we're, we've, we've brought some, we're, we're involved in some, we're acting on some, I think is the best way to put it, um, and uh, as, as are some others. Um, uh, what happens is that the case is brought urgently, but there's a lot of work done to prepare the, to prepare what's called an injunction. You know, so you, you effectively it's an urgent action in the court, um, and the urgent action is to, uh, to to argue that there is a serious question in law um, about whether this per, in this case the duty of care is being met, and and the essence of the argument is um, let's take a man on Nauru who um, is suffering from uh, serious mental illness, psychosis um, due to the conditions, okay um, and requires really intensive treatment um, and, um, you know, where, where there is self-harm, um, potential suicide attempts um, what, what, what the argument is, the, the legal argument is that, um, um, that this man cannot be properly cared for um, there is not a, a, adequate the, the standard of care um, required is not being met, and and that um, he needs to be brought to Australia to receive that care, and that if he doesn't, um, that um, the harm, yeah, that there will be further deterioration. And in cases like this, um, really, medical experts have continued to warn that lives are at stake. Um, mm. So that's the essence. Those cases are urgent because what happens? The court the, 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 in an injunction. The court is really um, being asked to to order um, an interim. Uh, uh, yeah, it's an it's an interim solution. It's not an ultimate. It, it it's an interim order saying, look, um, um, pending the outcome of the full case as to whether the care was adequate or not, um, the court decides whether it's best to urgently evacuate or not. Mm. Okay, and that's that's the issue. Of course, the consideration of the court is. If they don't make the order, you know, given the urgency, if they're satisfied that there is a serious argument about the adequacy of care, they then need to look at, well, if they didn't make that order, you know, what, 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 what could happen? We're speaking with David Mann, Executive Director at Refugee Legal. And if we just stay with the medical evacuation bill just for, for a moment longer. So what's been proposed by the government as a sort of compromise, as far as I understand, is that there would be input or advice provided by medical uh, practitioners but the discretion to relocate someone from Manus or Nauru would remain with the relevant minister. And, and I've read that Labor is 
potentially contemplating siding with the government on this, depending on what sort of conversations happen behind closed doors. I mean, how do you read that? Do you think Labor is playing politics, trying to kind of nullify the issue ahead of an election, or, or where might this go? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, your your question perhaps um, may, um, yeah, may within your question uh, lie the answer. But, um, look, I, I think it's difficult to know at the moment. There will obviously be um, more negotiation. The fundamental problem with the government's compromise is it does not advance things. Uh, there is no look. The evidence is in. Let's. I mean, you know, history means something here. That you know, for more than five years, um, the government have effectively um, operated on discretion, and we've seen the result. You know, we've seen the result. You know, there is one simple way of describing it. Lawyers have had to fight tooth and nail to get critically ill children off. You know, medical experts saying these children must be brought off, you know, um, urgently, and lawyers had to fight tooth and nail to get them off by going to the Australian courts and and asking Australian courts to, uh, you know, identify whether there's a duty of care in another country, you know. I mean, so we've seen the results of discretion when a government has discretion, when the government affected... What the government's here saying, and they say it all the time, I'll tell you, you you know, successive governments have said it, we want a free hand in these matters, right? Yeah, just leave it to us. Trust us. We'll look at the reports. We'll have a look. But trust us. Uh, leave it with us. Now, we know the answer to that already. We, we, we know the harm that has been wrought through that. So that's the answer to that. What will Labor do and why? I think, well, let's wait and see. One of the big problems here remains this sort of toxic, um, you know, the, the toxic politics of, of asylum in this area where there continues to be um, not a focus on, you know, fundamentally on the protection of people, but rather on the protection of borders. And I think that this is once again where we see this political jousting going on, where we see um, obviously underpinning all of this is concerns, you know, by Labor about an impending election, um, uh, wanting to focus on other issues, and also concerns about being wedged because constantly this turns into a question of wedge politics rather than what it should be mm. and that is the focus on the people. Yeah and there, I mean there's so many things I want to ask you now all of a sudden but I mean when you're talking about having a free hand we're, we're actually seeing that play out in a in a different way and that's with uh, I'm reading reports that that Australia might fast track the citizenship of Hakim Al-Arabi who's uh, in prison at the moment in uh, Thailand and so he people will know his story it's been really well uh, reported and so he's very high profile and uh, it looks like there might be some sort of intervention there. I mean, how do you respond to that? Because obviously he's in a precarious position. He's been declared a refugee. He was red flagged. He shouldn't have been. So there's a lot of issues there already. But what about our response to it here, the Australian government? Well, the Australian government's response um, was initially far too slow and, um, and you know, I think timorous, I'd say. I think it was, uh, you know, sort of really um, very clear cut. I mean, th- this is a man who sought refugee protection in Australia and was granted it. Um, there is no other protection available to him. And the very issues that, you know, underpinning the very reasons for his refugee protection are the dangers now that he, you know, that there's a very strong connection in what his plight is um, now. This precarious plight, and 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 you know, and and the reasons why he sought protection in Australia. That it, it seems to me clear cut. It is Australia's response. Australia has assumed responsibility for his protection. And the whole point of refugee protection is that someone comes to our country and they they don't have anywhere else. That they can be protected, they're, they're, because their state is unwilling or unable to protect them. So it seems to me, in one sense, under, understanding how refugee protection works, that there is one country in the world that should be stepping in and providing every um, level of assistance it can uh, to him, and that's Australia. So, I, so know. I mean, FIFA, FIFA starting to yeah. talk about its policies towards refugees, potentially helpful, but it's Australia that, that needs to be stepping up. Look, it's all helpful, but I suspect that um, that Australia stepping up was, in, in fact, that, you know, the, the, the sort of wind in the sails was, in fact, FIFA and others, and the, the public concern, because initially Australia was very slow and equivocal, I- extraordinarily, really. Mm. It's interesting looking at, at this um, ongoing saga involving Hakim al-Arabi and also the story of the, the Saudi woman, Rahaf Mohammed al 
Kanan that was covered on, on ABC's Four Corners last week. A shocking story of someone who was planning to seek asylum in Australia but seems to have a, appeared to be blocked from coming into the country to, to formally seek asylum. And these are quite high-profile cases. In the case of uh, Rahaf there was a, a large social media kind of following her, her plight when she was um, hold up, held up in Thailand. What do these cases that are very high profile and played out kind of in the public domain tell us about the way that the government continues to deal with these cases? Because we don't hear about most of them, of course. We hear about the ones that make it to the newspapers, make it to the front page. Yeah, well, it, it, and, you know, this goes to the heart of it. I can tell you right now, having um, worked in this area for almost two decades, as we were talking about before, um, that, you know, Refugee Legal, my agency, have um, seen many cases or been alerted to many cases where um, someone has come to Australia um, seeking protection where, and, and, you know, you know, reached customs and um, they've either been detained here um, and finally been allowed to apply for asylum or haven't been. They've been turned around without being able to. And you're talking and about s- s- women from Saudi Arabia who are uh, who are subject to the male guardianship laws? Um, we're aware of a number of cases, including yeah. Saudi women. We're, we're actually also representing a number of Saudi women, I should say, um, who have got in, but there are some you know, that, that have not been able. But I can tell you, I mean, I, I, I can tell you, you know, I've, I'm aware of, for example, in the past, you know, Somali women coming, you know, um, here on their own, there being no possible conclusion um, from immigration officers when they speak to someone in this situation that they are fearful, you know, petrified and fleeing um, persecution or, or uh, yeah, fearing persecution and wanting to seek asylum. And yet there have been quite a number of cases where people have been blocked from doing that and turned around. Where they've ended up sometimes is very difficult to know. Um and um, the channels in which we find out about that, um, uh, you know, sometimes informal and complex. But what I can tell you is that there's something very simple about all of this, and that, that is what have we signed up to as a country um, legally first? But I, I actually, but it's morally, but it, the moral and legal uh, connect on this, they align. What we've signed up to under the Refugees Convention is something very simple, and that is if someone reaches our territory um, and uh, says they're in danger, they're fearful, and their protection, our first and fundamental obligation is to examine their case, examine their story, examine their claims, right? If there's someone that we find meets the legal definition of refugee, that is, they've got a well-founded fear of being persecuted for a civil or political reason under the Convention, we must protect them. Um, The whole point is to give access to territory, to our territory, to allow someone to put their case, and if they're in need of protection, we identify their need for protection to protect them not to expose them to further harm elsewhere. So and this, that's the key. So know? the idea that, um, as was reported in the Four Corners piece that a lot of people, I think, saw last Monday, was that uh, some Saudi women are arriving without... Uh, unaccompanied. Uh, they're, they're grown women, uh, but because of the male guardianship laws in the countries that they've left, our border force is asking where's your male guardian, which is what was claimed in in Four Corners. And that, you know, was quite shocking and I think angered a lot of people that we potentially are de facto enforcing those laws then. Is that how it would be seen in international law, Uh, David? Well, I tell you in international law, I'll go back to the basic point. When when a woman in that situation arrives, the first thing we should be doing is, is... working out providing them with a, a, a you know space um, where they feel safe to explain their predicament and they should be provided with independent supports that is they may it, uh, you know it might be a, a female you know uh, you know social worker or someone or support person so, um, an interpreter a lawyer but what they should be able to do is explain their predicament because let's be frank about it if a Saudi woman arrives um, at our borders, um, that we should be taking very seriously the question of what their needs are, why they're here, um, and 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 having a proper dis- because we have obligations, moral and legal, um, to to ensure that that um, if she if she is fleeing, that we um, uh, provide her with the opportunity to explain her case and to be given a fair hearing about that and to protect her if necessary. That's the starting point, really, in mm. international law. These are the questions 
seem to me to be extraneous. Um, that what, what, what seems to me the heart of it is actually starting on the assumption that she might need help and protection and be fearful. And that this is the big problem with the process here. Once again, it's focused on deterrence. It's focused on you know, detention and deterrence. It's focused on how, how can we stop people getting here or block them from access to you know, seeking help, seeking safety, rather than how can we actually properly um, you know, have regard to their predicament and if, and if they need protection, protect them. And we're learning more and more about the intricacies and, and kind of the, the backroom efforts the government takes um, to disallow people seeking asylum refugee status in Australia or keeping them in offshore detention camps for a very, very long time through um, examples such as what was covered in Four Corners this week, also the incredible book from Baruz Buchani, um, mm-hmm. No Friend But The Mountains, which won the Premier's Literary Award last week. And you talk about the, the tide shifting on this as we become more aware of all the moving parts in Australia's detention, immigration, border control regime, whatever you want to call it. Do you see much hope for change in 2019? Do you think there will continue to be pressure on the government to fix this problem that, that we've got ourselves into? Yeah, a couple of points. I just want to finish and say this asking about you know, Saudi women at, at, at the border, about their male guardians. I mean, the consequence of that um, if, you know, is quite possible to compound the persecution, right? That it, it is, we should be appalled by it. And, um, yeah, and, um, and, and yeah, we are all nodding our heads here and um yeah i mean it's it's it is absolutely and in terms of it's it's shocking really um but on the the big the big yeah i think the big word this year um in the asylum and refugee area is change right that's that's the key the tide is turning we've seen that with children um being um evacuated from nauru there are many other situations we are um getting um, more people um, medically evacuated um from Manus Island and Nauru, so that is continuing. Um, people are very slowly being resettled to the US. Um, it should never have come to this. It's an aberrant deal, but nonetheless, it does provide an option for safety. The tide is turning. Um, and, and can I say, one, one thing about change here is that I think we need to think about change not as something in the future down the track, you know, where we have to, you know, we have to wait for the outcome of an election. Change, um, the foundations of it must be con- continue to be laid now. Um, and that involves, for example, pressing for the urgent evacuation of um, you know, refugees from Manus and Nauru. Uh, it continues to be laying the foundations for what a fair process would be in Australia, a fair legal process. We don't have a fair process at the moment. There are people at risk right now of destitution in our communities, in our neighbourhoods, you know, seeking asylum who have been left in limbo for years. You know, providing care, providing assistance, urging you know our government, state government, urging the federal government um, to you know provide assistance to these people, properly care for them, but also you know um, you know in the community, charities and others, you know NGOs stepping up and providing help. But what I, what I guess I'm saying, you know, that, that that we need to create the momentum for change too, and I think you know there is increasingly, uh, you know, people are raising their voices um, across the country. Um, more and more about the the issue and uh, calling for change, and I think that, to me, um, yeah, what what's critical with this change is that we um, lay the foundations now. Um, we don't know what the outcome of the election will be, of course, but what we do know is these policies um, do not work. They're failed policies that we've seen, the ones that harm people fleeing from harm. And what we need to do is be clearly articulating now alternate policies, which actually, you know, not not only um, not only meet our legal obligations, but actually you know, align with um, you know the, the kind of society we want to live in and defend. Mm-hmm. And. Uh David, we're well out of time. Thank you for coming in. Um, David Mann from Refugee Legal, and I suppose we'll see what happens in Parliament. Um, they've only got a few days. They're going to be sitting before the next election, so let's see what they do in this area. Thanks again for coming into Triple R. Thank you. Thanks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.